Mark, um, in, in the rush of just talking to people, I forgot to get the uh, prayer letter for the Bowsos. Brother Mark, would you mind? You know that tray leading into my office? There's that tray where papers are stacked. On the very, very top, the very top paper is a letter of the Bowsos. We'll read that at the end of the service. 1 Corinthians chapter number 1, it will be in verse 18 to start with tonight as we continue our study through the book of 1 Corinthians called The Wisdom of Christ. Now, if you were to walk into the home of any Christian, or most Christians, I should say, what type of decoration are you likely to see on a table, a wall, or perhaps a necklace? A cross, of course. In fact, cross decorations are so popular, I did a I did the only time I ever find myself on Hobby Lobby's website, and I searched for cross decorations on the Hobby Lobby website. And in Hobby Lobby alone, you can buy over 250 different types of cross decorations. I didn't know there were so many, but apparently they are. That's because as Christians, we love the cross. Right? All right, come on, y'all. We're going to try that again. Um, I, I would like this to feel like you're involved in this thing, all right? So let's make sure we're kind of on the same page. A nod even is okay. I don't mind nods. But as Christians, we love the cross, don't we? That's right, we do. We love it because it reminds us of God's love. It reminds us of the price that Christ paid for our sin and to gain us our salvation. It is really the geometric symbol that is the closest to summarizing who we are as Christians, the cross. Now in America, it's probably normal for us to go to a store and see a cross decoration. And I think that the fact that maybe in the Midwest and with certain types of stores, the prominence of the cross and, and the amount that we see that, it blinds us to the reality that the cross is not loved by everyone. The cross is not beautiful to everybody. I mean, think about this. The cross is an instrument of torture. In the first century, if you walked around with a cross necklace, I guess that would be equivalent to someone walking around in 2023 with an electric chair necklace. Maybe that gives you an idea of how the cross would have been viewed in the first century. The cross symbolizes all the things I mentioned, but really at its base, the cross was a, a naked man hanging on a wooden post to die for the most horrible crime. That's who deserved to be on a cross in the idea of a crucified savior. The idea of someone believing in a God that died is the silliest thing that a religious fanatic could ever think up in the eyes of the world. Do you see what I'm saying? That the very symbol that, that you and I have come to love, we love it for what it stands for, but the cross is a controversial thing. The cross divides humanity in two. Think about the idea of this statement. 
The Son of God was crucified on a cross. And think of how many billions of people you lose by that one sentence. Well, first of all, when you bring up the word God, you've lost hundreds of millions of professed atheists that populate our earth. When you bring up the idea that God had a son, you lose every Jewish person ever born, whoever was educated in the ways of the Old Testament. When you say that that God became a man, you lose about every other religion out there. And then when you say that that man who was or is God was crucified on a cross, you lose all sorts of people. And yet it is this message of the cross that is central to who we are as Fellowship Baptist Church. The cross is central to who we are as Christians and it is the cross that God has called you to proclaim to your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, and your family. That message, the controversial one, that's what God has called you to take to the world. And that's why, church, we, we are not surprised when churches or Christians feel the need to wrap up the cross in a more beautiful wrapping paper. That shows up in a lot of different ways. But the reality is, is if you stand out there in the streets or you talk to your friend about a crucified son of God, that just doesn't really sit with most people. So a lot of people feel tempted to accommodate that message and to change it, to maybe modify it in a way that seems more palatable to people who are not Christians, who don't love the cross like we do. I think in our culture, I was talking to the guy who cuts my hair about this a couple weeks ago. Believe it or not, I have enough hair that I feel like it's still worth cutting. And I have a person who does it for me. I think a lot of Christians, the way that they've avoided the cross is they've begun preaching what I call self-help Jesus. That, that they can have the word church on their door but Jesus and his sayings are boiled down to a roadmap of self-help to a better life for you and me. And I won't argue the fact that, that Jesus is giving us wisdom for this life, but I do wonder how often those churches, the cross is preached. It's apparent to us when we read the passage we're in tonight that the Corinthians felt the need to accommodate, to modify the message of the cross. That the cross that was, the cross that brought them to salvation was a cross that they felt ashamed of. That they felt like wasn't oppressive enough to impress their Corinthian hoity-toity neighbors. And, and so they then projected that expectation onto their preachers. And this as a congregation began to divide over certain types of people, and as we talked about two weeks ago, they were dividing themselves based on who they felt like matched the wisdom of the culture in their preaching, and they despised Paul because his preaching didn't sound like Corinthian public speaking. It sounded very different, and we'll get into that tonight. But Paul comes right out of the gate in verse number 18, giving us his main thought for our passage tonight. 
And he shows us the dividing line that is at the cross. He says, for the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. And then he quotes the Old Testament. I believe it's the book of Jeremiah. And he says that God wrote that I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. You know what Paul's saying in verses 18 through 19? You ever remember in English class when they're teaching you how to write papers, which would plague you for the rest of your school years, that they say to start your paper with a thesis statement? Verse 18 is the thesis statement of our passage tonight. Paul is laying out up front this idea. The cross may seem foolish, but it is superior to the wisdom of this world. That's his main idea. And I'm gonna form our, our, our sermon in a question here. But the main idea is this, the cross, though it seems foolish, is superior to the wisdom of the world. And then in the subsequent verses, Paul's going to answer the question as to why the cross is superior. Though it seems foolish, Paul is going to give us three reasons the cross is superior to the wisdom of this world. I think another way for us to think about this passage, if you want to phrase it more beautifully, is maybe for as a Christian, three reasons why the cross is beautiful, even when others think it's foolish. And I'll lay them out up front and then we'll read our passage, but Paul gives us three reasons and I'll, I'll give them to you later, so don't feel pressured to write them down. The first is because it's foolish message is the only way of salvation. Number two, because it leaves no room for boasting in ourselves. And number three, because it powerfully transforms lives without the help of an impressive presentation. Let's read our passage tonight. In the book of 1 Corinthians, which contains the word of our Lord, starting in verse number 18. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Verse 26 his second proof. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many mo noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world, and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are. Why? Verse 29, 
that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you, save or accept Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. What is the first reason the cross is superior to the wisdom of this world? Number one, verses 20 through 25 show us that the cross is superior because its foolish message is the only way of salvation. Its foolish message is the only way of salvation. That though the cross is scandalous, though it's contrary to our logic and our reasoning, the cross is the only means by which we can know God. And and Paul kind of calls out humanity for their many attempts to try and know God through other means than the cross. That's the purpose of those rhetorical questions in verse number 20. He's he's debating. He's, He's calling them out. Where is the wise? How's that wisdom working for you, bringing you closer to God? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? He's saying that God has shamed, God has brought to nothing the wisdom of this world because the wisdom of this world never brought someone closer to God. And he, he shows, depending on someone's culture, that people try to approach God different ways. They try to discover God different ways. Verse 22, he says, the Jews seek after signs. Do you see that in verse 22? The Jews require a sign. And we've seen this in our Matthew series, haven't we? That it was the Jewish people, the scribes and the Pharisees who were constantly asking Jesus through a sign to prove his deity, right? Show us another sign, teacher. They were quite willing to believe Jesus was the Messiah if he would keep displaying signs and wonders to them. Here's what they're saying. That in Jewish thought, God demonstrated himself pretty often in the Old Testament through wind, earthquakes, and fire, right? Mount Sinai, wind, earthquake, fire. Elijah, wind, earthquake, fire. When we see this, In the temple, in the tabernacle, wind, earthquake, fire, right? God is showing himself through these mighty signs. And so the Jews said, this is how we're going to know it's the Messiah, by this big demonstration of miraculous power. And Jesus says, the only sign I'm going to give you is is the sign of Jonah when I raised from the dead on the third day. That's how the Jews sought after God. But verse 22 says that the Greeks, they had a different path to God. Their path to to God and to salvation was through wisdom. Now, now you and I use the word wisdom. Paul really is meaning human logic, human reasoning. And he's getting us to ask this question. Would somebody in their own human reasoning be able to come up with the idea that God would reveal himself through a cross? Who would have ever thought of that? That doesn't make sense. 
God killing his son, who is him? No logic comes up with that. And here's what Paul is saying. He's saying that apart from the cross, humanity can do all they want. They can use their human reasoning or they can look for miraculous evidences and signs, but none of those things will bring somebody to God. The only way that someone comes to God is through the message of the cross. That's the beauty of it. That it's through that illogical, very anti-miraculous cross that you and I come to know God. That you and I begin to have our sins atone and enter into a relationship with him. And it's because that cross is so foolish that verse number 23, it's a stumbling block to the Jews. That's what he says in verse 23, right? It's a stumbling block. Meaning that in Jewish conception, Jewish thought, they can't believe in a crucified Messiah. That's their hang up with Jesus. To the Greeks, it's foolishness, it's stupidity. But, verse 24, unto them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now what does this have to teach us as Christians? Christian, the, the thing you and I can learn from this is that if the cross is foolishness to those who are not saved, then we should not be surprised when our message of the cross is rejected. It shouldn't devastate us. I know it does. But when someone rejects the message of the cross, expect that. Expect that. Because Paul lays it out himself that if somebody is not enabled by the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit to be called by God, they're not going to see the beauty of the cross. It's going to be a stumbling block. It's going to be foolishness. Christian, don't be discouraged when the culture doesn't respect the message of the cross. Paul laid it out here in 1 Corinthians 1. That's what would happen. It shouldn't surprise us if more and more public officials think that Christianity is stupid. That shouldn't surprise us. Because while it is to us who are called the power of God and salvation, to those who are not called, it is foolishness. But even when the cross is rejected, we must not change the message of the cross. We cannot. And I want you to understand that when Paul is writing the Corinthians here, I think he's picking out these two groups on purpose. The Jews who believed in science and the Greeks who believed in wisdom. Because I think the temptation exists for Christians to fall back and to rest their hope and their trust on those two things. Is it not true that Christians, there, there are movements of Christianity that very much shy away from the cross and are very drawn to looking for God to do big miraculous things? That, that there are wings of Christianity that are very obsessed with miraculous movements of God, that that's how God displays himself. But friend, God was present on that day at the cross. God is not just present when big, miraculous things happen. God is there in a moment when someone is being hung on a tree. And so as Christians, we must not just only gravitate to the big and the miraculous and the showy. Because our faith at its core is something that is shameful and embarrassing and small and pitiful. Where everybody forsook Jesus, the cross. 
But the church, I think, was falling back on this wisdom idea too. See, as Christians, we have the same temptation, don't we? We want God's plans to make sense here. Let me help you. If the plan of the cross wouldn't make sense here, why should we expect other of God's plans to make sense up here in our noggin? That the cross is giving us a pattern that the Christian life is a life of us doing things that contradict human logic. If we operate our Christian life based on human logic alone, we will find ourselves taking improper steps here and there. So why is the cross beautiful? Why is it superior? Because it's the only way of salvation, even though its message appears to be foolish. But here's number two. The cross is superior because it leaves no room for boasting in ourselves. Verses 26 through 31. Paul starts directing his words at the Corinthians themselves when he says in verse 26, for you see your calling, brethren. He's saying, listen, think about your own story. And he, and he surveys the classes of important people that were present in their day. And I think what Paul is saying here is that as humans, our temptation is to think that our status matters to God, right? We think that our wisdom matters before God. We think that our might, the nobility there is is someone's birth lineage, whether they're a ruling class or a servant class person. As humans, we're constantly trying trying to find ways that make ourselves feel good before God. We're trying to find ways to validate ourselves, aren't we? We're trying to find ways to think that we can somehow clean ourselves up for God and make ourselves better for him and that we can somehow earn his favor, whether it's by our class, our status, or even our morality. But the calling of Christians proves that God doesn't operate based on what you bring to the table. In fact, what Paul's saying here is that as a Christian, it's not as though you saw the beauty of the cross in your own power. In fact, if you're part of the world that sees the beauty of the cross and doesn't see foolishness in the cross, what Paul's trying to show us in these verses is that you brought nothing to the table in that equation. That the only reason that you see beauty in the cross is because God chose you for nothing that was in yourself. Verse 26, I I, I like this. He says, not many wise men after the flesh are chosen. By the way, God does call some people who are from upper class things to salvation. Praise God for that. We saw that in the book of Acts. But instead, God often chooses in verse 27, Sorry, but this is the truth. The foolish things of the world. He chooses and calls people who don't have much to boast of. And it's not as though God is, you know, arbitrarily choosing more lower class people than upper class people. What Paul is saying is that It's those people who don't have much to boast in who typically see their need of Christ more than those who think they have a lot to offer God. Are you getting this? 
And so what Paul is saying is that the reality is, is that even in the calling and the salvation of the Corinthians, they recognized that they had nothing to offer God and that God chose them, even though they brought nothing to the table, they were not of the top tiers of Corinthian society. They were nobodies. They were middle-class people. And what God does with nobodies and middle-class people and even foolish people is he takes those people and he bestows upon them the riches of Christ. And in doing so, you see this word in verses 26 through 30, and especially verse 27, he confounds the wise. That word, though we don't use it this way, that means to shame. God shames those who have something to boast of by enriching nobodies with the riches of the gospel. And he describes the riches of the gospel in verse number 30. He talks about the wisdom of Christ. And what is the wisdom of Christ? Christ, in our calling to him, he has made unto us righteousness. He releases us from guilt. He's made unto us sanctification. He gives us a positional standing with God. He is made unto us, in verse number 30, redemption. He frees us from the power of sin. He releases us from bondage. This is what God has given to you in Christ. You want to meditate on a verse this week? Meditate on verse 30, on what you have in Christ. That Christ has made has given you righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So if God chooses weak people like us, not because of anything we bring to the table, friend, that means something to how we operate as Christians and how we operate as a church. Paul's not just giving a theological treatise here. He's not just like laying out his doctrine. He is preaching for change in a local church. And we know this based on later chapters in Corinthians that these are people who are obsessed with making themselves look better than each other. Right? They're they're obsessed with maybe my giftings and maybe my ministries will make me better than others. I find my validation in my gifting and my ministry. And it's no wonder when people are competitive with each other that they project that competition onto their leaders. So here are people who are trying to fight for looking at themselves and hoping that they can look around the room and find some criteria by which they can think they're better than others in the room. It's no wonder that they start looking at the different people who have led their church, whether it's Apollos or Paul or Peter. It's no wonder that they start looking at those guys and start asking questions in their mind, who's the best? Because that's the question they're asking about themselves. So what does 26 through 31 tell us? It tells us that you and I, we must not jockey for an elevated status in our church. You've heard the old saying, right? The ground is level. Where? At the foot of the cross. That's what Paul's saying, really, in these verses. But Christians, we find all sorts of ways to de-level that ground. To somehow find a way of self-boasting. It happens a variety of ways. In the Corinthian church, it was by their status outside of the church and in the culture. 
Sometimes it can be by what ministries people serve in or do in the church, how many services they attend a week compared to others, how long they've been in the church, how much they give to the church. Boy, I, I, I'm so glad this hasn't happened here, but I, I know of many pastors who've had people in their office try and leverage how much they give to the church. My soul, that is a wicked mentality. As if God is impressed with how much you tithe. As if that gives you a greater say than a congregational body. I think this attitude, at least in the church I grew up in, this may not be true of every church, but this, this attitude of not recognizing that the ground is level at the foot of the cross is especially obvious when churches choose officers that they vote on. I've noticed that typically the average church member chooses deacons or trustees if a church has those or elders or whatever, not primarily based on their spiritual qualifications, but how impressive of a person they present themselves to be. It, it, it seems to be oddly coincidental that most of the time it's the upper class leaders in the culture that happen to be deacons. And I'm, I'm not saying that this is the case here. I'm just saying, church family, that the case could be if, if we do something like that, if we elect officers to our church, that criteria has no business in the house of God because the ground is leveled at the foot of the cross. The, the Bible gives us our qualifications for officers in the church. In 1 Timothy 3, right, there's qualifications for pastors and there's qualifications for deacons, and that's the only criteria, and we ought to maybe stick to that criteria. I think God kind of knew what he was doing when he inspired those scriptures. I think he, he saw into the future and knew what we would need, right? And, and so this idea of us not recognizing that we are level at the foot of the cross shows up in so many ways. But Paul, I think, also is trying to encourage you and I to only boast in our undeserved relationship with the Lord. Twice he punches this point home in this section. Look at verse 29, that no flesh should glory in his presence. Verse number 31, he says it, that, and he quotes um, Jeremiah 9. I'll read that in a moment. But he says that according as it is written, he that glorieth or boasteth, let him glory in the Lord. God is telling us here, Christian, and listen, this, this is probably be the most practical, relevant thing for most of us. That we cannot look for validation or significance in anything but our relationship with God through Christ. I'm saying, I'm gonna say it again. Please listen. It is unhealthy and it is ungodly to look for your significance or validation in anything but Christ and his cross. Let me help you understand where you might sit with that. Ask yourself this question. What makes me feel insignificant? What makes me feel insignificant? I wrote a couple thoughts. Disappointing other people. Lack of results or progress. Lack of credit for what I do or validation from others. Could be a pat on the back or a like on social media. 
lack of usefulness in my family or in society. I've talked to a lot of folks who are retiring, and that is something, particularly, I've only had this conversation with men, I'm not saying women don't struggle with this, that men struggle with when they retire sometimes is that they don't feel useful. And here's what I'm trying to help you to do. That if those things make you feel insignificant, that tells me and you that your eyes have migrated from the cross. That if what makes you start to change your valuation of self is the fact that you've disappointed people, you don't feel useful, you don't feel helpful, that you haven't been as impressive to others as you might think you're impressive to yourself. What tells me is if that, those things disappoint you and those things make you feel not validated, that you have taken your eyes off the glory of the cross and you have tried to find a glory in something else. Hear the words of Jeremiah. As God says to him, thus saith the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me, that I am the Lord which exercise loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, saith the Lord. What makes you feel insignificant? On the other hand, what makes you feel significant? Because if Paul is saying that the only thing that should make us feel significant or validated or glorying or boasting is the Lord, then if the answer is anything other than that, it's a problem. I thought of what some things might be that might, in this group, in myself, make us feel significant or validated. How much we make. Our success with our kids or our job the approval of others, self-approval. Sorry, uh, self-esteem is what people call that. Our health, our weight, our looks, our hair. (laughs) Friend, it may feel utterly natural for you to find significance and validation in those things, but those show me and they show you that your eyes have left the glory of the cross. Listen, listen, your value, your price was fixed at the cross. I I know self-esteem talk is so common in the 1990s and the 2000s that we live in, but we don't need self-esteem to give us a value of ourselves. Christ showed us our value. He showed us that though we were not mighty, though we were not noble, that he died for us. That is what gives us reason to feel validated and significant. Not in anything we bring to the table, but in what Christ put on the table for our souls in our life. No wonder those of us who find significance and validation in all these things, we ride an emotional roller coaster. Because the price that was fixed at Calvary is stable, but the price that people will put on you moves. And so we find ultimate glory and value in the cross, not in our self-worth and not in the validation of others. I'd encourage you to look up the song, My Worth Is Not In What I Own. Someday we'll sing it. 
because it's so good. I want to read you some of the lyrics. My worth is not in what I own, not in the strength of flesh and bone, but in the costly wounds of love at the cross. My worth is not in skill or name, in win or lose, in pride or shame, but in the blood of Christ that flowed at the cross. I rejoice in my Redeemer, greatest treasure, wellspring of my soul, and I will trust in him, no other. My soul is satisfied in him alone. Fix your eyes on the cross because the cross shows us that we have no room for boasting in ourselves. But number three, the cross powerfully transforms lives without the help of an impressive presentation. I feel like Paul sometimes, especially today when you all have been abnormally silent for an often silent crowd. When Paul says in verse number one of chapter two, I came to you not with excellency of speech or wisdom, declaring unto you testimony of God. And look at verse number three. He talks about his manner of presentation. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom. He's saying, y'all know when I came and preached to you that I didn't have anything to offer. I wasn't an impressive act rolling through town that could draw lots of people and bring a crowd. I was weak. I was fearful. I didn't have impressive words of wisdom to offer to you. He says in verse number one, I didn't come to you with excellency of speech. What is Paul telling us? He's telling us that ultimately, The power is not in the presentation. The power is in the cross. Now, let me help you. Paul's not saying, I wish he was, that it doesn't matter how clearly a pastor communicates the word of God. That'd make my job a lot easier if it didn't matter. But that's not what Paul's saying. Paul clearly was a man who knew how to use words, right? When we read this this scripture, We often read it with 21st century lens, but when Paul says, I didn't come to you with excellency of speech or wisdom, he's not talking about the way he spoke as much as he's talking about the content that he spoke. Remember, he's contrasting this with the cross. So Paul's saying, I I wasn't a fancy Greek philosopher. I, I wasn't impressive to look at. I wasn't the type of guy that you would hand out an invite card to see this next act at church. I was just a preacher who had the message of the cross. But you know what he says? He says, the good news is, is that when I preached the message of the cross, that was all that mattered. And your own testimony confirms that, right? He says that you know, Corinthians, That what happened in verse number four was a demonstration of the spirit and of power. What is he talking about? He's saying, I I didn't, I didn't have anything to bring you, but verse number two, the content of Christ and him crucified. That's all I had to bring to you. That's all my message contained. And hey friend, here's the reality. If that's all a sermon contains, it's enough. 
I love what Charles Spurgeon said. He's famous for saying this. A sermon without Christ is like a loaf of bread without flour. No Christ in your sermon, sir, then go home and never preach again until you have something worth preaching. Wow. I wonder, church family, does it ever register on your radar if someone preaches a cross-less sermon? Does it register on our radars when someone preaches a Christ-less sermon? It should. But what Paul is telling us is that the power of our ministry is not in our methods, but in our message. Hey, I'm all about methods to get people into this building. I think you figured that out, right? Boo at the zoo, 9,000 pieces of candy. Start bringing candy donations next week, please, right? And sign up, add that sign-up sheet. A lot of you have done that. That's really been really encouraging to me. I'm all about, we could do all sorts of crazy fun things to get people through these doors. That's great. But let us remember that the crazy fun things are to get them through the door. They will never bring them to Christ, You can do the coolest presentation all you want, but I'm a little concerned if a cool presentation brings somebody to Christ and not just the cross, right? The power is not in our presentation. Our power is in the cross. And this ought to be so encouraging to you. You know, a lot of us, we grew up in a time in the church where it was, it was all about the dog and pony show, right? We got to get people on the bus by swallowing goldfish, and we got to have crazy stuff in the church and skits and all this stuff. And I think sometimes what that does is that makes us think that in order for us to win people to Christ, we have to be some sort of charismatic person. Most of us are not, me included. But what would encourage you in your evangelism? is that all of that stuff is really cool, but the only thing that has the power to convert a soul is the cross of Christ. If you're looking for a way to share the gospel that actually work, I've only got one strategy for you. Preach the cross. It don't matter what your outline is as much as what the end of the outline is being the cross. Because it is the message of the cross that Paul said to the Corinthians was the very message that demonstrated the spirit and power. And it's because of that foolish message of the cross that was presented by a very weak and trembling and unimpressive vessel, which all of us can identify with. Somebody say amen to that. It was that message that took people that Paul said this of. In 2 Corinthians 6.11, it took people who are caught in fornication, caught in idolatry, caught in adultery, caught in homosexuality, caught in stealing, who were greedy, who were drunkards. And it was the simple message of the cross that changed those people forever. So much so that Paul could say in chapter 6, verse 11, such were some of you. You got people in your life who are so messed up, you don't know how to help them. Preach the cross. I said, preach the cross. I think Christians, somehow, we we look at people in our society who are given over to some of these sins. Homosexuality. Drunkenness. I don't know how to help them. Preach the cross. That'll get somewhere. 
Preach the cross because it is that message that will transform somebody who seems unable to be transformed. And that's why Paul said, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's why every Christian can proclaim the gospel. Because everyone in here who I know professes to be a Christian, you know the cross. You know it backwards and forwards. And by the way, that's why every sermon I try to preach has the cross in it, because I want to equip you with a thousand ways to talk about the cross. You have everything you need to see someone come to Christ. The only tool that has to be in that tool belt, you don't need three or four like you've got sometimes, Judson, on the bell. You only need one, and it's the cross of Christ. And you know what that that means? We've done run out of excuses for not sharing the gospel. You know, sometimes I'll confess, I I have a tool that's at the house and not at the church. And so there are projects I'm doing at the church that I don't do one day because I left my tool at the house. Left my circular saw. You don't have that excuse. If you got the message of the cross, you've got all you need to preach the gospel. And let it encourage you that the gospel powerfully transforms lives without the help of an impressive presentation. This last week, I, uh, I hit the two puny two-year marker as the pastor of this church. I had someone ask me, Mike, what, what would you tell someone about pastoring based on your long tenure? Two years of pastoring. And I only share this because I think it might be a help to you. I said, and I really mean it, that I have very little to bring to the table. But God seems to do stuff even without me. And I think if you were faithful to share the gospel, you would find that to be true yourself that you would stop being worried about how little you bring to the table because you would see as Paul saw that even when he brought nothing to the table, God seemed to do something that was the demonstration of the spirit and of power. But that has to only happen when we present the cross. No cross, no conversion. So let's start preaching the cross. And let's watch how it changes people from darkness to light. And let's not just preach the cross to others. Let's preach the cross to ourselves. Because when we preach the cross to ourselves, we recognize we bring nothing to the table. We recognize that the ground is level at the foot of the cross and there's no means of human boasting. That we do not boast in our riches or our wealth or our fame or our wins We boast in our relationship in Christ and that's all we've got. And when we recognize that, we don't have to ride the human roller coaster of validation from other sources. And when we preach the cross to ourselves, we will be less tempted to turn back and lean on human methods of trying to figure out life by looking for miraculous validation 
or trying to make everything make sense with human logic. The cross shows us that both of those are folly. The cross shows us that God doesn't always make sense. But it's the things of God that don't make sense that create the most powerful results in the end. Shelby sang last Sunday morning a message that I think summarizes our passage. And the chorus says, this the power of the cross. Christ became sin for us. Took the blame, bore the wrath. We stand forgiven at the cross. Christian, that's the power of the cross. It's so powerful. We just need to unleash it. Let's pray. Father, we come to you tonight and we rest in the power that is in your cross. Lord, help us to find significance not in anything worldly, but in the statement you made at the cross. Help us, God, to trust in the power of the cross, not in our human wisdom or presentation. Lord, I pray that mindset would be a catalyst for evangelism among our church membership. Lord, help us not to fall back into human logic and reasoning because we know that the cross defies all of that. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let me give you a couple of announcements tonight. If we could go off that slide, Brother Mark. And uh, I want to give you a